I've often spent my daylight savings bonus hour working on D3 football, so why should tonight be any different? We get a bonus hour? We get a bonus hour. You get a bonus hour. You're not in Arizona tonight, right? That That's correct. I'm not in Arizona. That is... That is fantastic. That's the greatest gift I could have got today is an extra hour of time. You were just talking about how busy you are. A weight has lifted off of my shoulders, Pat. I went to Wisconsin today, came away with the fabulous spotted cow that can only be achieved in America's Dairyland. That looks very delicious. Every time I drink one of these, frankly, I think about Lenny Reich late great sports information director at Mountain Union, who introduced me to the joys of this particular brew, bought me one when Mountain Union was playing at UW Oshkosh in the Nate Wera era, 2010. So a, a regular season home and home with Oshkosh. Good times. I should have one of those again. We wouldn't have to wait until November 4th. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman. You have a very forceful handshake, Mr. Coleman. And Greg Thomas. Thank you, Greg. That was interesting, too. There have been 50 seasons of Division Three football. We've covered it for 25 of them. We've had a podcast since 2007. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. The only podcast directly from the folks at D3Football.com. We are here every week all season because we live and breathe this stuff. I'm Patrick Coleman, the executive editor of D3Football.com. I'm Greg Thomas. I write around the nation at D3Football.com. And Pat, the next time we sit down to record, we are going to have brackets. We're going to have actual brackets in our hands. But before we get to brackets, we got week 10 and week 11 to talk about. That's a kind of a sobering thought, really, because you and I are sitting down and recording this at midnight central daylight time on Sunday morning. For all I know, might be central standard time before all is said and done. I hope not. We're not expecting to record for two hours today. But yeah, that means we are not going to sit down and do this again until late. It's going to be a late record next week. This is an early record. That's a late one. And um, all of these things impact how little sleep I get before I have to haul my uh, brain out of bed to go to work on Monday morning. But here in Season 17, Episode 16, we're going to talk about another number of teams that have clinched, teams that survived, teams that were on the bubble that are hoping for at-large bids whose bubbles nearly popped on Saturday and did not. We'll talk more about that. And we'll talk with UW Lacrosse quarterback Kaiser Helterbrand on Fast Five. Much more over the next hour plus. But before we get to that, we should thank and recognize our sponsor, D3Photography.com. You know D3Photography.com. We've talked about them over the course of the past number of weeks. This past week, you can see a couple of the uh, very important games that happened in Division Three were represented here by the D3 photo folks. The River Falls lacrosse game, plenty of photos of that game, multiples of which were on the front page over the course of the day on Saturday. Johns Hopkins against Dickinson. We knew that would probably be a game of some interest. It became even more interesting on Saturday. Gustavus against Carlton. That determined who was going to play in one half of the MIAC championship game on Saturday. They're going to play in the entire game, but one of those teams is the one that advanced. Guilford and Averett and uh, UW-Whitewater and UW-Stevens Point. Yeah, the D3Photography.com crew, they're out there taking photos of all manner of D3 football games and other Division Three sporting events. You know, Pat, it's holiday season, believe it or not. It's the holiday season. The holiday season. So hoop-dee-doo. I can't think of a better gift idea, Pat, than photos from your student-athletes' games taken by the folks at D3Photography.com. How can people get that and maybe... You know, a little something for the effort. It's never too early to order for the holidays, and you can do so by going to the website d3photography.com, ordering prints, and you can use the coupon code D3Football, which gets you 10% off all orders. I know that I have done that in the past. You want to make those orders before about, you know, December 5th or so, but you want to do it this week, do it this week. And you can do that by going to d3photography.com and using 
that coupon code D3Football. Thanks to D3Photography.com for sponsoring the podcast. All right, we mentioned that a River Falls lacrosse game existed, and like a lacrosse game in a key moment in the WIAC this season, another heart-stopping finish. Didn't look like we were going to have one of those, Greg, though. Lacrosse out to a huge lead at the half, and it was 31-7 to after the first drive of the third quarter. But you never really think River Falls is out of it. You know, as long as they could hold on to the football, Falcons had coughed it up on consecutive possessions in the first quarter. Lacrosse got up early, extended that lead into halftime and beyond. In the second half, Lacrosse focused on playing keep away, just trying to keep possession, keep the clock running. But River Falls still rallied. They scored twice in the third quarter to make it a game once in the fourth to cut the lead to three. Those are all Caleb Blaha rushing touchdowns. Even so, looked like lacrosse had finally gotten the defensive stop it needed, and River Falls was sending out the punting unit with 3.45 left on a fourth down. But lacrosse didn't have its punt return team ready to go. They called a timeout, and after the teams came back out, no surprise really, frankly, that it was the River Falls offense coming back out. 19-yard slant on fourth and six gives the Falcons new life at least, until the final play of the game in which lacrosse blocked the field goal. Here's lacrosse coach Matt Janis talking about how that final drive went down. All right, take us back to 345 left. They're looking like they're going to punt the ball, play defense, try to get the yeah. ball back, and then you guys call timeouts. Yeah, so tell us about a, that. Yeah, that's that's a mistake by me. That is. I, I, I didn't think we were trying to get punt safe, so we weren't trying to get anybody back there. We, our kids froze because we that's that's on me we we put in a punch safe the week before so they all looked at who was going out and so that's on me and um, you know I called timeout because I was worried about not having enough guys out there and in a good credit to Matt for going for it that yeah. I mean I, I knew that I, the second I did it I said oh he's gonna go for it that is a mistake by me and uh, could have cost us but fortunately enough uh, I had a, we had a player I don't even know who got it you know who got it? I still don't no, know no I don't know either <laughs> uh, <and> somebody <laughs> bailed me out so we'll look at all the footage yeah, on Twitter so those, and yeah, see so those who. guys bailed me out on that first off beautiful pass on that slant second off that field goal did not get super high off the ground probably high enough that it would have cleared the crossbar but it did not clear the front line. No, what a great rally by River Falls in this game. Uh, early on in the game, Pat, in our in our Slack channel, we were sort of moving on from that game a little bit, looking at some other things going on. River Falls keeps coming back, keeps coming back. And then in the fourth quarter, getting late in the last six minutes or so, you sent the message out, I'm going to have to get back down to the field. And you did, and you saw a great final drive, a lot of drama there, no field goal run-ins for right. a win this week <laughs> but lacrosse once again coming down to a field goal at the end of a game done that a couple of times this year it's worked out really well for lacrosse and wiac champions i think you can kind of tell if i'm at a game that i'm posting video from you will see me on the field for the entirety of the first quarter as long as the weather is good that is my goal to get as a uh, you'll get a little flavor of the game and get those first 15 minutes. And then I'm back up to the press box because I got to work. There's 100 other games going on. And then the question is, am I down on the field for the final three minutes or more? And it was definitely more on Saturday as that game came down to the end. But lacrosse gets the W. They clinch the WIAC championship, the automatic bid. And we will talk more about this with lacrosse quarterback Kaiser Helterbrand coming up on Fast Five in a little bit. Other big game on Saturday, Mount Union lived up to its number two ranking. In the first time, this ranking's really been put online all season, right, Greg? A 49-14 to 14 win at 13th-ranked John Carroll. So Mount Union always talks publicly about its primary goal for the season being to win the Ohio Athletic Conference title and let the rest of it go from there. Saturday's win allows it to do so in a much less dramatic way than last year. For those of you who remember how that went, we're not going to replay the highlight, but it involves a helmet and a football, and a touchdown. Even so, this game might not have been without a little adversity. Here's Mountain Union coach Jeff Dart after the game. We got stopped, you know, coming out of the second half um, on our first drive, but after John Carroll just went right down and scored. So they, they had a little momentum at that standpoint, but the defense came up with another big spot, or stop, excuse me, and, you know, we were able to effectively run the ball in the second half. And I, I, I thought that was the difference, and we mixed in some pass with that. So excited about the win, and, uh, you know, obviously John Carroll's a great team, and, you know, we got some momentum going today, but uh, looking forward to playing next week. 
Thanks to Mark Podolsky of NewsHerald.com for the post-game audio. His post-game story called the game, quote, rough and brutal for John Carroll. And Greg, it's hard to argue. They're real brutal. It's a real brutal place. It really is. When I talked to Rossi Moore for Around the Nation a couple of weeks ago, he emphasized over and over during uh, my conversation with him that their goal is to dominate. And they really did that against John Carroll. There were a couple of spots where John Carroll forced some punts, got some got some things going offensively, but Mount Union just too consistent, too ready, too experienced to let John Carroll stick around in the game really much beyond the first quarter or so. Steadily pulled away. I looked away, updating some scores, come back to the John Carroll-Mount Union game. Mount Union's got another two touchdowns. And what was, you know, yep. a 14-7 to game, is all of a sudden, you know, a 28 to 7 game and Mount Union is on their way to really a pretty comfortable win at John Carroll and yeah, you know, we've been waiting to see how Mount Union ranked number 2 was going to look against, you know, a team who's not lower in the OAC. They looked really good today and you know, they looked they look they look ready for for the five game postseason run. I'm going to hold off trying to draw really specific comparisons between how Whitewater beat John Carroll and how Mount Union beat John Carroll just because, you know, one of those games took place under two brand new coaches back on the first weekend of September. And now we're talking about week 10. I think we know that the Whitewater team from week one is not the same as week 10. And I just have to think that there's just been too much time elapsed to really make a uh, apples to apples comparison there. Yeah, certainly the further you get away from those results, especially qualitatively, one game happened two and a half months ago. One game happened just this weekend. So difficult to draw. Now, John Carroll, according to selection and seeding pri- criteria, those games count the same. And they'll get a ton of credit in the selection process for having played Wisconsin Whitewater. Is it enough to get John Carroll in with two losses? I don't know. We'll see. That's That'll be something more to talk about next week uh, and in the week coming up as we sort of look ahead and project and and preview what those brackets might look like. But today was Mount Union's day for sure. One more big game this week, Pat Brockport at Cortland for the Empire eight championship. And we expected to see some outstanding defense in this game, but we might've been surprised at what uniforms the defense was wearing. The Cortland red dragons used the dominant first half to run away and hide from Brockport on the way to a 41 to 17 win Cortland intercepted Brockport's Ben Gasella four times, intercepted Brockport passes five times overall in the game. On the other side, Brockport's defense did have some really nice moments. They sacked Zach Boys four times, but Cortland's big play offense did find enough plays to steadily pull away and comfortably complete their undefeated Empire 8 season. Cortland, they're going to head down to Ithaca next week for the Cortica Jug game, where for the second consecutive year, both of those teams go into the Cortica Jug game having secured playoff spots. Color of the uniforms just makes me think it's going to be a future or maybe it's a past on the spot, right? Uh, yeah, right. Cortland having the dominant defensive, especially you know those first 15 minutes of the game. This is a game that I did not have an opportunity to watch because I was elsewhere, obviously, but seeing all the updates come in and the highlights posted by Frank Rossi on X and that sort of thing is like this thing snowballed super quickly. Yeah, Brockport really struggled from the quarterback position in this game. Ben Gasella, a first-year player, really the first big game that he's played in. And I don't know if, if inexperience had anything to do with it, but um, there was definitely a, a disadvantage there a bit from Brockport's quarterback position, just really not reading defense very well. All right, now talking about teams that were on the bubble and maybe are still on the bubble in terms of how about that game between Wheaton and Wash U, where I think a lot of people were hoping to see an at-large spot perhaps open up. Yeah, the Wash U Bears at Wheaton this week, they took a 35-28 to lead with just 70 seconds to play, which was exactly the wrong amount of time to leave Ben Torson and the Wheaton offense. Torson quickly moved the Thunder down the field, and completed a pass with five seconds left that appeared to give Wheaton first and goal at the one-yard line. However, Ben Torson threw that pass well beyond the line of scrimmage. That's not allowed in football, Pat. And so Wheaton had to do it one more time from the 34-yard line. 
to score, and here's how it sounded. Likely the final play here. Thorson only rushed three, steps up in the pocket, is going to say a prayer as he fires for the end zone. The pass is going to be caught. Touchdown. Silencio Bruno, what a play. And the Thunder now one point away from tying the ball game. Wow. Oh, my goodness. The Thunder come back. Was the, it's Seth Cordenhoven. Who's going to take the lead for the touchdown matchup? What a catch. And that's Seth Cordenhoven with the reception there. Wheaton with their playoff lives on the line. They go for two, run a sweep to Giovanni Weeks, who is able to get the ball to the front pylon and give Wheaton the walk-off 36-35 to win. Under center, Cordenhoven in motion. And it'll be a toss to Giovanni Weeks. He's got the end zone. And the Thunder able to convert for two. This game is over. Wheaton wins 36-35. The crowd goes absolutely wild. Walk off, sprint off, dance off. I, I think they're allowed to dance and celebrate at the end of the game at Wheaton these days. I tell you, Greg, I think like weeks barely got to that pylon, but nice to see Wheaton be successful on a PAT after a couple of high-profile fails in that department in big games in recent seasons. Muhlenberg survived as well, Greg, somehow. FNM did not give the people what they want, and they did not go for two. And you know what happens when you don't go for two and lose? We selectively pull that stat out, and we spotlight it here. That we do. Franklin and Marshall had a chance in the first overtime, Pat, to go for two and go for the win against Muhlenberg. Muhlenberg and Johns Hopkins this week, both maybe a little hungover from last week's drama, but Muhlenberg does survive the double overtime win against Franklin and Marshall and they stay at one loss and stay in play for a pool C bid. Go for the tie at home, go for the win on the road. That's not just a basketball thing, right? And then I think Cohen Dubuque seeing Cohen Dubuque even going into overtime, a bit of a surprise. That's right. Co they're also in the pool C hunt with just one loss. They also had to scramble to keep their playoff chances alive. They went to overtime with Dubuque on Saturday Dubuque was held to a field goal in their half of the overtime. In Coe's overtime, the Cohawks, they face a fourth and one. They go for it. They get stuffed. Dubuque's defense goes crazy. Helmets off the whole thing. They think they won the game. Flag comes out. The call is illegal substitution on the defense. First down for Coe. On the very next play, Coe running back Ray Seidel fumbles on his way toward the goal line. The ball bounces forward where the only person around is Coe quarterback Carter Mask who falls on the loose ball in the end zone for the co-win and co-survives and they stay at eight and one, one loss. Yeah, all of this not good. If you're a fan of Barry, Barry, a team trending with a chance to finish nine and one, but with a sub 500 strength of schedule or someone like Co, who is probably looking at a similar, although stronger SOS or someone like Hope who has Surprisingly, a very strong SOS, but does have two losses. Even they came back and won on Saturday, defeating Trine 38-28. to Yeah, we looked at, in Around the Nation, we identified about 12 teams that we're looking at for four playoff bids. And right there on Saturday afternoon, in the span of about half an hour, we had three teams that were all on that list and all about to go down and clear some space for other teams but all three of those teams managed to save their bacon a little bit now with the d3football.com podcast fast five with kaiser helterbrand just a few minutes after his team survived at uw river falls by a 31 to 28 score see you all met you all met you all met First of all, Kaiser, congratulations. This game gets won while you're on the sidelines and your field goal block team is out there for the final play of the game. What's that feel like for you? I mean, the emotions were were, were going, were everywhere on that last drive. I mean, there's nothing more that you want to be out there on the field, especially in the last drive. But, I mean, hats off to our defense. I mean, they played a, they played a great game. I, I was confident they were going to get a stop. Um, once they held them to a field goal, I, I knew I knew our field goal block unit um, really gets a lot of pressure. So, I mean, I, I felt confident, but what a drive. What a resilient drive by our defense. You've had a senior center all season, right? No Coleman, as far as I know, no relation. Not able to go today. You're working with a freshman, and does that throw off your timing a little bit? Um, 
No, not really. Just because of a full week of practice. I mean, Watson, Watson practiced his butt off this week. Um, we really got that that um, that timing going. We got the snaps going. I mean, he played great today. I, I really I couldn't say more about our O line. Honestly, they they really carried us this game. And um, yeah, no, there was there was really no um, no issues up front. Because it looks. I'm not going to be picky, right? I'm just going to ask the question a second time. Because some of it looks slow, and in the first half, you know, I am guessing that you want to get the ball and you want to go, right? right. When you're when you're running the ball, you want to get it and go. And sometimes right. you were reaching for a snap over yeah. your shoulder early on, and then he settled in, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, and that's something we work on. Um, that's something we definitely work on all, um, all, all practice. I mean, it's... I mean, a, a freshman coming in, you're you're gonna have nerves. So, I mean, I thought he settled down great. Um, we were we were talking through it the whole game, kind of um, adjusting where we wanted the snaps. So, yeah. I, I think he did a great job. Big season for you guys, obviously, clinching automatic bid here this afternoon. Obviously, knowing you guys are going back to the playoffs, but still with work to do, right? Because you guys want to secure yourselves home games and that sort of thing. Correct. Yeah, yeah. We we still got another one at, at Stevens Point next week, um, and uh, we're gonna prepare like any other game, um, but. Yeah, I mean, this one feels great. It really, it, it feels like we've accomplished something that um, we've been working for all all off season. I um, mean, we talk about getting thir the 35th national, I mean, uh, conference championship for lacrosse every single day. So, mm -hmm. I mean, to kind of feel that, um, feel that relief, um, it, it's great. But yeah, we, we've got another one next week that we got to take care of. Tell me a little bit about how you've been used this year, right? You know, sometimes just lining up straight up running back, um, you know, sometimes as the guy who's being called on to win the game with your legs, sometimes today more maybe with your arm. Yeah, I think that just goes to Coach McGuire's uh, versatility in this offense. I, I think he, he puts guys in positions where they can use their strengths the best. And, and I'm a guy like, I, I don't care. I don't care about stats. I don't care where I play. I just care about wins. And if that's me lining up at running back, uh, wide receiver, uh, wherever he needs me, if it's going to put us in the best position to win, I'm going to do it. And obviously, you guys uh, winning this in front of a big crowd, a very vocal crowd today. Mm -hmm. And for you, you know, this is kind of just down the road from you, right? Yeah. Uh, in you know, because you're just down the road in Hudson, Wisconsin, growing up. So tell us a little bit about that. Oh yeah, I mean, I had this one circled all year. I mean, coming back here, um, I got a lot of friends and family here um, watching. Um, yeah, it really came full circle for me, um, especially being my senior year coming back here. Um, it, it, it's great to get a win here in front of so many um, people that came to watch. I mean, this is a decision you made four years ago, but I got to ask, how did you not end up coming here, right? Mm -hmm. Because you go to Hudson, you're coached by a guy who's basically River Falls' all-time greatest quarterback up until the last mm -hmm. couple of years, but you ended up uh, ended up somewhere else. Yeah, I, I mean, partly it's um, it's that Hudson River Falls rivalry. I mean. You, you don't you don't want anything to do with River Falls, really. So I mean, this is at, a, at the high school level. Correct. Yeah. At the high school okay. level, um, and then it was just kind of that rift. Um, and then I mean, I I, I visited Lacrosse. I kind of like to be a little away from home. I think this is a little too close to Hudson for me. So I mean, Lacrosse suited me perfect. I I couldn't have I, I wouldn't have picked a different school. I mean, I'm so happy I ended up here. Folks, the, the, the thing to take away from here is that football players also make decisions like every other college student about whether they're too close to home. Right. Tell me a little bit about uh, Jack Studer, Zach Watson today. A couple of great performances by them. Yeah, I mean, some great catches. Right, yeah. Jack, I mean, Jack Studer, he's, he's my guy. I mean, I, I always know he's going he's gonna to be in the right spot. He's going to make crazy plays. And then, yeah, Zach Watson, I mean, he's is a kid that probably wasn't going to make the team three years ago. Okay. Just kept working his butt off and and kept beating our defense and scout teams and just kept working his way up. And then, I mean, he comes in out and making plays in games like this. It, it's awesome to watch. Right, listed 5'9", 165, makes a great catch on a fade over mm -hmm. here in this uh, end zone yeah. for you. Yeah, I mean, he just has a great sense. He's a, he's a football guy. He, he understands um, the intricacies of defenses. He understands where he needs to be. He might not be, like, the most athletically uh, gifted guy, but I mean, he just has a, he has a great mind for football, and um, yeah, I mean, it showed today. He made he made great plays. What a brilliant season this young man has had, playing so many different roles for lacrosse. Look, the Eagles haven't blown everybody out, especially through Wyack play. But every single time they've needed Helterbrand to make a play or grind out the last few minutes of a game, he has delivered. And now he has delivered a Wyack championship and a return trip to the postseason, where no doubt there is unfinished business for the Eagles after last year's early exit. I said this to Helter Brand after the interview finished, and I think I'm going to repeat it here for this audience too. It was not my intent to ask him to malign the freshman backup center who was taking the role 
after the starter got hurt. I just wanted to, you know, dig into that a little bit more, find out how that affected him because it was definitely visible and it progressed and got better during the course of the game. And we did get a chance to talk about that and get that on the air. So I was happy about that. Game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. It's time for game balls. And my game ball is going to Mount Union linebacker slash spur slash safety Ian Sexton on a day in which both sides of the ball played outstanding for the Purple Raiders. I'm going to spotlight Sexton as he had a pick six in the second quarter to put Mount Union up 28-7. He finished with seven total tackles and a tackle for loss in that 49-14 win against John Carroll. Pat, my game ball is going to go to Cortland wide receiver Cole Burgess. The Cortland-Brockport game came billed as a battle of strengths. Cortland's high-powered offense against Brockport's lockdown defense. Burgess proved to be way more than Brockport's vaunted defense could handle. Burgess scored three times on receptions of 64, 24, and 71 yards. That 71-yard score came early in the third quarter and staked Cortland to a 38-3 lead, which really put that game on ice pretty early. Burgess finished the day with nine catches, 245 yards, and those three huge touchdowns. And for his dominating performance in a conference championship clinching win, Cole Burgess gets my game ball. Greg, I, I kind of told Kaiser Helterbrand that uh, you were going to give him your game ball since you've talked about it so many times this season. I feel like Kaiser Helterbrand is going to be in the mix again a little bit later on. That's not my stat. Also, not going to be my stat. Not my stat. That may be the most incredible stat. My stat of the week is actually an outgrowth of an old Greg Thomas stat, a a preseason stat, in fact. In 20 questions, which is a season predictions package we do the week before games start here on D3Football.com, one of the questions that we put together for our panel was, which of these quarterbacks will throw for more yards per game? McAllister's Michael Netto, Wabash's Liam Thompson, or Aurora's first-year starter, Ian Luyando. I could put Greg on the spot and ask him what he thinks the numbers are right now, but instead I'll just let us all know that it's Netto going away, 340.4 yards per game. Thompson is at 257.1, and Luyando 247.1. Luyando has the benefit of returning D3Football.com All-American Jaquay Creighton in the backfield to the tune of 157 yards per game. doesn't matter how many yards he throws for, though, because Aurora has the highest scoring offense in Division Three at 62.3 points a game. That's just a hair ahead of North Central, which is averaging 61.8 per game. And wouldn't that be a great national quarterfinal? Not a second-round game, committee, a national quarterfinal. Aurora remains five points ahead of North Central going into Week 11. I am surprised that Luyando is not Got more yards than that. I did see Aurora did get their quota of 10 touchdowns again, and they will play next week for a bid to the postseason. Last week, Pat, we had three teams wrap up bids to the NCAA tournament, not four, like I said at the top. This week, we had 11 more teams clinch their spots in the field of 32, and that means we have 14 automatic bids left. Of those 14 auto bids, Nine of them will be determined in games where the winner of that game will go to the NCAA tournament. And that is my stat of the week. We will run down all nine of those winner take all games a little later in our look ahead to week 11. We go region by region so we can spotlight more teams, more stories in each edition of this podcast. And so for region one, we ask who's having fun in the one and having fun in the one while getting it done as well is Springfield which wrapped up the new Mac title and the automatic bid while rolling over Norwich 58 to seven on Saturday. The pride racked up 598 yards of total offense. They had four takeaways and a punt return block for a touchdown in the win. Springfield can try to finish nine and one and secure a decent seed in the playoffs next week as it hosts SUNY Maritime. Wesleyan also had fun in the one as they secured their second straight little three championship with a 30 to 22 victory over Williams. The Little Three is a localized rivalry within the NESCAC between Amherst, Williams, and Wesleyan. Last week, Wesleyan handled Amherst pretty easily, but this week the Cardinals needed 22 fourth-quarter points to get the victory. Wesleyan quarterback Nico Candido 
came up clutch for Wesleyan, throwing touchdown passes of 28 and 20 yards to give Wesleyan the lead. Then running in the game's final score from three yards out with two minutes and seven seconds to play to give Wesleyan their final eight-point advantage. Pat, who is pulling through in the two? Catholic pulled through in the two on Saturday. Greg, quarterback Madden Lowe finally seems back at full strength for the Cardinals and was able to complete 40 of 47 passes for 352 yards and four touchdowns as Catholic defeated Wilkes 40-35. to Earlier in the year, Catholic had a number of games played in the rain and Lowe kind of struggled, not because the ball was wet and slippery, but because it gets heavier when it gets wet. Wilkes' loss was its second in Landmark Conference play, and it means that Wilkes can't play any role in possible wacky tiebreaker scenarios should Lyco beat Susquehanna next week. Pat, who isn't pulling through in the end, Jack? Christopher Newport entered this week with a two-game lead in the loss column to Montclair State, but the Redhawks upset the captains on Saturday, 19-14, and the end, Jack, could get very, very weird. Montclair State is in the clubhouse with a 4-2 record. They're going to play Muhlenberg next week. Christopher Newport, now 4-1 in the NJAC, they'll play 3-2 TCNJ. A Christopher Newport win makes the captains the NJAC champion, and the rest of this isn't interesting. However, if TCNJ can win that game, they will tie Christopher Newport and Montclair State with 4-2 records. Salisbury, also 3-2, finishes their regular season at winless Kane, and they could join the pile of teams at four and two. But wait, Pat, there's more. But hold on. You even get six world-famous Ginsu steak knives. Rowan is also three and two, and they finish with William Patterson. And a win for the profs would put them also at four and two. And we could have a five-way tie in the end, Jack. What a time to be alive. All right, Greg, so earlier today, I requested tiebreaker scenarios from Terry Small. He's the commissioner of the New Jersey Athletic Conference. And God bless Terry Small. Terry is one of my favorite conference commissioners. He's a guy who reaches out fairly regularly to talk about things that we have done or said always in a positive way. I have a full list. You want the full list? Oh, yeah, this is going to be good. If it comes down to just two teams being tied, obviously, then it's the head-to-head winner. That's pretty obvious. That's a conference first tiebreaker everywhere if three or more teams are tied then it's the winner in head-to-head competition the team with the best record against the others combined is declared the champion if tcnj goes on to defeat christopher newport then this is a wash all five of these teams would be two and two against each of the other four teams in the group so that's not super helpful and now you're talking about next uh, results versus the next highest conference team until the tie is broken There's not likely to be anything there either. Everybody will have swept the only two remaining teams in the conference not involved in this hypothetical five-way tie being Kane and William Patterson. So then it goes to first half scoring differential among the tied teams. First half scoring. The halftime score is important. And in this instance, now this is kind of quick back of the envelope, back of the napkin math, right? It was my understanding that there would be no math. So Christopher Newport so far is at plus 21. They still have a game to play against TCNJ that could factor into this tiebreaker. Salisbury is at plus 16. They don't play anybody in the group anymore. Montclair is at plus 10. TCNJ is at minus 18 with that one game to play. And then Rowan is at minus 29. So Rowan cannot uh, win that tiebreaker. TCNJ, for them to go from minus 18 to pass... CNU, who is plus 21, they only have to outscore them by 20 in the first half because then that would put them at positive two and CNU at one. Of course, that's just a scenario of a five-way tie. What if Salisbury doesn't beat Kane? What if Rowan doesn't beat William Patterson? Then you can probably go back to record amongst the tied teams and be able to break it that way. We will certainly see more about this all week. One more thing. Here in the extensive NJAC tiebreaker discussion scenario. Hey, the third division, we're actually answering your question right here for all intents and purposes. These games are all being played Friday night, and that is not a coincidence. The entire NJAC is playing on Friday night, and that is because if a school wants to be considered as a host for the NCAA field hockey tournament next weekend, November 11th and 12th, those games have to be played at a specific time. And that would conflict 
with wanting to get football games done early enough so that the automatic bid can be considered in terms of bracketing and seating and all that. And there's a lot of strong field hockey teams in the New Jersey Athletic Conference. So that is why all of those football games are happening on Friday night. Logistics. Logistics. Yes, sir. We got logistics coming out of our ears. Pat, that was great information about NJAC tiebreakers. What do you see in the three? Hopefully I see less complicated tiebreakers in the three, but what I do see is I see Marty Favret riding off into the sunset, at least as far as home games go, as Hampton Sydney defeated Shenandoah 26-25 in overtime. James Townsend came up with the key blocked extra point for the Tigers in that extra session. Frankly, Greg, in a season where Hampton Sydney has lost twice when the other team has gone for two and succeeded, perhaps the Tigers were happy to just see a team line up for the kick. Hampton City got a 28-yard field goal from Elijah Sweat with just seven seconds left in regulation to force the extra session, and Sweat made his PAT in overtime, giving his team a chance to win when Townsend came up big. So the win is the 151st in the career of Marty Favret, who announced at the beginning of the season that he would be retiring at the end. So he's the Tigers head coach, and he got the whole ice bucket brigade and got combined with getting carried off the field. You can find a photo of that in our wrap-up on d3football.com. So if his team can come up with a win next week, that's a way to end a career. But Randolph Macon has beaten Hampton Sydney, its arch rival, nine consecutive times. Nine times. In the rivalry contest known simply as The Game. Randolph Macon rolled over Ferrum on Saturday to clinch the ODAC's automatic bid. Pat, I see that Huntington knocked off Brevard 31-27 to to pull Brevard back to the pack and into a tie atop the USA South standings with Huntington and Belhaven. Belhaven squares off with Brevard next week in a game that will either send Belhaven to the tournament as the USA South representative or Huntington by way of Huntington's head-to-head win over the Tornadoes. The Hawks rallied from a 21-0 deficit early in the second quarter in this game to keep their playoff hopes alive. The Hawks got a huge day from Kahari McReynolds, who rushed 23 times for 166 yards and two scores in the win. Greg, who's looking for more in the four? Sons, what the four by four's for? I'm not sure there was room for much more at Muskingum, Pat. The Muskies and Wilmington went back and forth all game in an offensive slugfest, ultimately won by Muskingum 64 to 63. Trailing 63 to 57, Muskingum scored on an 18-yard Doug Crawford run with two minutes and 28 seconds to play. The Muskies went for two, Pat, because the people love it and a speed option to Donald Francis got the Muskies that two-point conversion and the win. Now, the Muskies did have to play some more defense, and they did come up with an interception of Derek Larimer to seal the win. Huge offensive numbers in this one, obviously. Crawford, 511 yards passing and five touchdowns. He ran two more in for the Muskies. Larimer threw for 482 yards for the Quakers, including an OAC-tying record nine touchdown passes. Six different Quaker receivers caught touchdowns in this game. Nine touchdown passes and not against the weakest team in your conference and not by throwing when you're up by 40 in a blowout in the second half in a game where you needed every single one of them and I guess actually needed another. Team of the week nominee. Also among those teams looking for more in the four have to include Mount St. Joseph and Rose Holman. These two teams, they go into week 11 undefeated, and they did so by looking for more points. Mount St. Joe defeated Bluffton 49-27, while Rose Holman rolled past Defiance 78-54. Greg, I make baseball jokes on this podcast because it's more often that football scores look like baseball scores. This one definitely looks like a basketball score. In fact, last year, Defiance lost to Mount St. Joseph 67-34 in December, yet we're talking about the basketball game. And they came back to beat them 71-57 to in January. Looking forward to Mount St. Joe and Rose Holman this upcoming week in a game that most assuredly won't be as high-scoring as either of those two, except it might, because Mount St. Joe won this meeting last year 40-31. to Love that D3Hoops.com crossover right there, Pat. I don't, because I am not ready for basketball to start, which it does this week. Thank you, Gordon Mann, for... Being the man on D3Hoops.com from now through about December 27th. Mumbo number five. 
Pat, who is looking alive in the five? Well, looking alive in the five. Well, yeah. North Central fans had some collective breath holding on Saturday as quarterback Luke Lanin was hit pretty hard late in the second quarter of the team's win against Illinois Wesleyan. He was tended to by trainers. He was lying on the turf for more than two minutes before he got up and walked off under his own power. His team was up 48-6 at that point, and Lanin was probably about to take his last snap anyway. His replacement, Calvin Lavery, handed the ball to Joe Sacco on the next play, and Sacco bowled his way 25 yards into the end zone to make it 55-6 in a game which the Cardinals went on to win 83-26. So this hit isn't late, right, but might have been unnecessarily rough. No flag was thrown, but might have been more rough than was necessary. Anyway, North Central has not yet wrapped up the CCIW title, and they're going to face Augustana next week in a game they have to win in order to secure that automatic bid. Augie survived a trap game 16-13 at Carthage on Saturday, and it almost goes without saying, but I will say it anyway. North Central would be much better with Luke Lane in a quarterback in that game in Week 11. Augie did survive a trap game, but not the trap game. Husson won the trap game 30-27. to Pat, Illinois College is looking alive in the five. Thanks to some help from the Monmouth Scots, Monmouth survived a crazy end to their game with Lake Forest on Saturday. The Foresters rallied from 16-0 down in the second half to make the score 16-14 late in the fourth quarter. Lake Forest starts a drive with two minutes and 10 seconds left to play from the Monmouth 48, and it looks like this is going to be the last shot for the Foresters. Scott's Nick Harris intercepts Lake Forest on the second play of the drive at the Monmouth 20 with 90 seconds to play, and this game looks done. But Lake Forest has two timeouts. They use them, and they do force Monmouth to punt the football with about 30 seconds to play. Lake Forest blocks the punt, Pat, and the Foresters have the ball at the Monmouth 14-yard line with 29 seconds to go. Lake Forest taking no chances. They line up and kick a field goal right then and there. And Tevin Baker of Monmouth blocks that kick to preserve the 16 to 14 win. So we had a blocked punt and a blocked field goal on consecutive snaps. And I don't think that's something I've ever seen. Thank you, Division Three football. Everything does happen here. In the end, that's Lake Forest's second conference loss. Illinois College and Monmouth now are tied atop the MWC with Illinois College's head to head win over Monmouth. The Blue Boys, they need a Week 11 win against Beloit to make their return to the NCAA tournament. Everything does happen in Division Three. Absolutely right. Six All right, Greg, who's got a new bag of tricks in the six? Minnesota Morris won their sixth straight game in the six with a 30-27 to win at Martin Luther, but they needed to pull out some tricks to get there. They're trailing 27 to 23 with under three minutes to play. And Martin Luther is in a goal to go situation. Carter Maurice wraps up the Knights quarterback, Max Nordley punched the ball loose and Greg Oman scooped up the loose ball and runs untouched 92 yards the other way for the game winning scoop and score with the win. Minnesota Morris stays perfect at five and O in UMAC play, and they will face off with fellow five and O UMACer Northwestern next week for the conference championship. This new bag of tricks in the MIAC has worked out pretty well for Bethel and it continued to do so on Saturday as the Royals defeated Concordia Moorhead 31 to 14 to wrap up the skyline division of the conference. So this divisional setup has been in place for three years, ever since the Mayak booted St. Thomas and Bethel has had its way with its division, never losing a divisional game in going 12 and 0. This week's trick also involved Joey Kidder throwing a touchdown pass for the Royals, along with catching one on a day in which he caught seven passes for 101 yards. Your categories have become tiresome. You've got mail. Tiresome. All right, you guys know how this works. We put out the call on X. Hey, we put it out on Saturday night at 10 p.m. And you guys responded actually better then sometimes you respond on Sunday afternoon. I think you guys are all watching NFL games. Um, but when at Sarandis, Ted asks, if you could eliminate four conference automatic bids to create four more pool C entries, which conferences would you choose? We would not choose to subvert the division three philosophy. Everybody gets an automatic bid. That's just the way it is. And we have to live with it. When the third division says, tell us about the NJAC tiebreaker rule. That's not a question. That's a statement, but we did answer it anyway. 
Parker Olson asks, as we enter the final week, what games have the biggest impact on Pool C? Who's on the bubble that needs some help? We'll talk a little bit about that before things go on here. But the question that we chose for this particular edition of the Mailbag comes from Matt Merrick at Merrick62, M-E-R-R-I-C-K, asking, do you think Endicott is the best D3 team to come out of New England since the Chris Sharp-led Springfield teams in the mid-2000s? The 99-00 Bridgewater State teams were really good, too. This is, I'm just going to knock down half of this question for the moment. I mean, the, the 99 Bridgewater State team, they got a home game in the first round, first year of the expanded playoffs. They lost to Ursinus, and then Ursinus just got pasted the next week by Rowan 55 nothing. And then that 2000 Bridgewater State team got shut out by Hobart in the first round. I will grant you, those Chris Sharp teams were pretty fantastic. And Greg, one of the reasons why I selected this question, too, is to talk about the thorny problem of reevaluating the Endicott Harden Simmons game. And also that just like Endicott hasn't really lived up to that ranking once they've gotten back into conference play, right? They played Ithaca really close, really well, lost at home on a last minute score. And they beat the pants off of Harden Simmons playing with what people they were able to put in uniforms that night. And then it's been, it's been kind of a mixed bag in conference play for Endicott guests, I guess is the way to put it. And I kind of wanted to maybe talk about that a little bit. Yeah, Nick, Endicott had a pretty good Saturday. They pulled away from Curry uh, after falling down 6-0 early. Took a quarter and a half to get going for Endicott this weekend, but ultimately won that game very comfortably. For me, I think when I look at this question and I'm thinking about is this the best team from New England? I'm thinking, how often do I look at a postseason team that has come from the New England area and thought, this is the team that might be able to win a playoff game? And it doesn't happen very often. I, I mean, if we're including if we're including Springfield in this, that was Springfield did beat Endicott last year in the playoffs. And I wouldn't rule out Curry that year in 2007 where they beat Hartwick in the first round and then lost at St. John Fisher. That's another... New England playoff team win. Yeah, so when I'm thinking about Endicott this postseason, I do really like their defense. I think they can play with teams outside of New England and be competitive. I'd love to see Endicott in a game against Delaware Valley or maybe Cortland or maybe a rematch with Ithaca. I think those are all really good games that could happen where we might get to see Endicott break through and win a postseason game, and I think that's the next step for them. The result against Harden-Simmons, you said maybe we reevaluate that a little bit now that we've seen Harden-Simmons at full strength. They're the one team that's beat lacrosse, not at full strength. They haven't looked as good. Obviously, the Endicott lost a couple of games in the weeks after, but they did match up athletically pretty well with Harden-Simmons. And so I think they have the players to go and win a game, maybe two in the playoffs, but that is going to be the next step for Endicott as they as they continue to build. I will stand by my assessment on the ground from that day in that if Harden Simmons had been at full strength, that it would have been a battle down to the end. It would not have been, you know, the mismatch that the rankings at the time thought it would have been. And maybe a game more indicative of where I kind of think both teams are now in the, you know, that 15 to 20 range. They're not necessarily both in that spot in the poll, but that's where they are in my brain. Matt, of course, Thanks for the question, Matt. Of course, you can ask those questions on X. We know we're going to get questions all week. I'm just going to say right now, we do not pick who goes to the playoffs. But you'd be surprised how many people think that we do. We'd love to have that authority. We might consider the relative weight of different games against regionally ranked opponents. We might not rank teams alphabetically after week nine. We do that after week eight. It's time for games to watch. Are you kidding me? Choose just one game? All right. Well, that seems unlikely, but if we're going to choose just one, I'm going to choose Cortica Jug. This is a rivalry game that will be played on the turf at Butterfield Stadium for the first time. On the turf for the first time because they took out the grass. And I hope Ithaca fans have overcome all of the histrionics, shall we say, this offseason when it was announced that the fabled grass was coming off of Butterfield Stadium and being replaced with turf. I think it's okay. It's okay, guys. We've already talked earlier about what this game signifies. Obviously, these are two teams that have already clinched playoff bids. They're very closely ranked. 
with each other. It is a rivalry that is, you know, the only one to put 30,000 people in a stadium twice in Division Three football. So but if we are using the same measure on D3Football.com as we are on D3Hoops.com to measure what the best rivalry in Division Three basketball is, to apply that to Division Three football, it has to be this one because it meets the attendance test. Anyway, looking forward to this one. I will spend some time watching it, even though it basically is only going to account for seeding. I love that it's been in some big venues in the recent past, but also love it being back on campus, and I look forward to that. I do think Cortica Jug is also going to wrap up number one overall strength of schedule for Ithaca. I believe that is wow, more or less a done deal. Who would have thought? Who knew? Week 11, so many games. Obviously, Pat, I'm going to be watching the Monon Bell game on Saturday. Wabash is hosting DePaul with the NCAC automatic bid on the line. It's probably Liam Thompson's last home game. DePaul's going for an NCAC three-peat, so that's a big one for sure. I'm also going to spotlight Whitworth at Linfield here. Week 11 in the Northwest Conference finally brings these two together. Both teams, they've been dominant through Northwest Conference season. Both of the teams are undefeated coming into this game, which, as Whitworth play-by-play announcer Bud Namick mentioned, it's the first time in Northwest Conference history that two undefeated teams will play for the league title in the last week of the season. So exciting piece of history there. Probably no at-large possibilities here, so both seasons will be on the line on Saturday when Whitworth visits Linfield. And then we've got a bunch of games where in the head-to-head result is going to tell you who is going to win that automatic bid for that conference. We've talked about the CCIW between North Central and Augustana. Augustana, great season this year. They have just the one conference loss, and they can win that automatic bid against North Central on Saturday if they can come away with that win. Heartland. Sing a song about the Heartland. Mount St. Joe and Rose Holman we talked about. We talked a little bit about Lycoming and Susquehanna. That is a head-to-head game for the landmark conference automatic bid. Do not look at Lyco's overall record. Then in the MIAC, you've got a head-to-head game between Gustavus Adolphus and Bethel. And then in the NAC, right, we have not talked about Aurora clinching the conference title because they haven't yet. No, Aurora is laying waste to all of the NACC opponents that they've played, but Concordia, Wisconsin, they are out there and they have just one conference loss and with a win at Aurora, if they can pull that off, Concordia, Wisconsin will get that auto bid, steal that away from Aurora. Greg mentioned that the NCAC comes down to that Monon Bell game between DePauw and Wabash. We are headed north. Whitward and Linfield. In the Northwest Conference. Two scholars rock fresh, north by northwest, and it's still no rest because we're not finished yet. Skyak, this is the first year of their conference championship game, and there are two divisions of three teams apiece. I wish they That's right, Pomona Pitzer winners this weekend against Redlands on Saturday night. They win the Sun Division and Chapman. They put away Laverne pretty easily on Saturday night as well. Champions of the surf division. And based on the earlier regular season matchup, Chapman winning against Pomona Pitzer, uh, Chapman has earned the right to host that game for the Sky X championship. Pomona Pitzer going for back-to-backs here. I know I go to Orange, California to do me some surfing. And then in the upper Midwest Athletic Conference, We wrap up our little look here with uh, Northwestern at Minnesota Morris. We talked about this game back in podcast number 340 when we talked with Northwestern coach Matt Moore, who also happens to be the chair of the National Committee. Meanwhile, if you are looking for help, if you are trying to get into the playoffs as an at-large team, root for St. John's to lose to Concordia Moorhead in what is essentially the MIAC's third place game, the game between runners-up in their two divisions. You want to root for Union to lose to RPI in the game for the Dutchman's shoes. It's got to be the shoes. Shoes, shoes, shoes. You sure it's not the shoes? You want to root for Carnegie Mellon to lose to Case Western Reserve in the Academic Bowl. I know I've told you a lot of teams to root for to lose. 
If that's something that offends you, feel free to root for the other team to win. That is also a perfectly valid way to go about it. I'm not quite sure where River Falls stands at the moment, but if you are a Pool C team, you would probably want to see the Falcons fall at Oshkosh next week as well. Not impossible. Oshkosh lost to Platteville on Saturday. Wouldn't hurt to see John Carroll lose to Otterbein. Don't know that that's particularly likely. Tried to spotlight other instances where it's at least a possibility. I expect Logan Hansen to pop up any moment now and say that the chances of John Carroll losing to Otterbein are not measurable by normal standards. All right, Pat, my on the spot this week. I'm going to keep it simple, unlike last week. My on the spot for you, Pat, is who will be the last team in? So the fourth team to get a pool C bid, huh? Understand that we may not actually get an answer on this sort of thing, but you can kind of figure this out by reverse engineering it out of the regional rankings. They give us a final regional ranking eventually. Sometimes we have to uh, remind them on Monday to get that sent out and posted, but uh, that is a thing that you can kind of figure out. Obviously, this is a uh, thing that has a lot of individual moving pieces and parts and requires projection of a lot of scores and a final strength of schedule and that sort of thing. But if we think that Whitewater is as much of a lock as you can possibly be in Pool C, and then St. John's is the next on the board from Region 6, and St. John's predict them to win and predict them to get in, I think then you probably go to Wheaton as the third one. Probably project that Augustana remains in the regional rankings, even if they lose to North Central on Saturday upcoming. And that would give Wheaton a win against a team in a regional ranking and, of course, a loss to one in North Central and a strength of schedule that is 524 currently. It's probably not going to slip too far from that. They finished the season with North Park, and this is the year the year in which a season-ending game against North Park doesn't tank your strength of schedule. Congrats to the Vikings winning their fifth game of the season on Saturday. And then I'm left with Co. Very ordinary strength of schedule. 500 now. Probably not going to change much against Loris. You've got Union. Union has got a pretty decent strength of schedule number. They did beat Springfield, who's regionally ranked, so that's a win against a regionally ranked opponent and a loss to Ithaca. I just struggle with this so hard, Greg, because I look at Union's games against Worcester State and Hilbert, and it's hard for me to wrap my brain around the fact that they still get a decent strength of schedule after all that out of it. But it's the same schedule, or at least it's you know 60% the same schedule that puts Ithaca number one overall in strength of schedule, so I guess I can see that. I think people will still talk about John Carroll. John Carroll will have two losses to teams that are regionally ranked and a win against Marietta, who will probably stay in the regional rankings. Two loss John Carroll. Strength of schedule is going to drop significantly in the final week, but will still be, I'm going to guess, probably in the 540 range or so. That's not great with two losses. River Falls obviously still needs to be talked about as well. River Falls, two losses, 588 strength of schedule. That's pretty good. They're 0-2 against teams that are regionally ranked and certainly had their opportunities. At the risk of belaboring this on the spot much longer than my editing capabilities are able to trim it down, I'm going to just put Union in that final spot. That'll be interesting, but I think you know, they have as good a shot as anybody else. You're getting to this point in the conversation, obviously. There's always not enough data to be considered, especially apparently this year. But I like Union there as much as I like anybody else. And the Liberty League, Pat, 19-6 and six in out-of-conference play as of the time that we did re-rankings in around the nation. And that is how Liberty League teams get big strengths of schedule. They perform very well outside of their conference. Greg, my on the spot for you is a game called Friday Night Spotlights. We mentioned there's four games on November 10th. I just need four winners. All right. 
So, November 10, it is Jack Night. Jack Night at the Apollo, or Jack Night at the Wawa. So we're going to start with the 6 p.m. kickoff, Muhlenberg and Montclair State. We're going to go in the non-conference game. I like Muhlenberg to go ahead and complete a 9-1 season and win at Montclair State. All right. We're going to go ahead and take Rowan to defeat William Patterson. We will take Salisbury to defeat Kane. That leaves us with the big one. It leaves us with a very important, maybe slightly more difficult to project one. TC and JPAT, they are on a four-game win streak. Yeah. That's the first four-game win streak they've had in quite some time. Was Eric Hamilton coaching the last time? <clears throat> we could look these things up, but the research department has already gone to bed. Christopher Newport, up and down this year. They've had some good moments, some tough moments. They had a chance to wrap up the end, Jack, this weekend with Montclair State. They could not do so. They're going to have to go on the road on Friday night on a short week to TC and J. Pat, as much as I really want to see a five-way tie in a conference, I think Christopher Newport is going to get that win at TCNJ. But nobody will be upset if it doesn't happen, except for maybe Christopher Newport, depending on how that five-way tiebreak works. <laughs> It'll be a very mild upset by a team slightly below them. In the standings, Greg picks Muhlenberg, Rowan, Christopher Newport, and Salisbury. Those are your Friday night picks. Get on the spot. And last week, I asked Greg to pick the first team alphabetically in each regional ranking. Let's see how he did in the one. Not so fun. Picked Bridgewater State, but uh, Delaware Valley was the first team alphabetically. There was nobody listed from the MassCAC. In the two, Brockport not ranked, but, you know, in a world where eight teams were ranked in the two, maybe they would have been. Barry in the three. Greg taking a chance that Bellhaven was not ranked. Bellhaven was ranked. But in the four, five, and six, a sweep of the final three for Greg Alma, Augustana, and Bethel all ranked first alphabetically. And last week I asked Pat to pick alphabetically winners from four games. This particular on the spot, Pat, sounded way better in my head last week than it does now. Uh, but Pat picked Coast Guard, RPI, Washington and Lee, and Wittenberg to win. RPI lost, but they lost to Hobart. So that slot's in the same place that RPI does in that list alphabetically. So Pat wins, and I really need to fully bake my on the spots. I'm glad I wasn't the only person who didn't fully understand that. And I am also in favor of things being fully baked. Last week in quick hits, in terms of upset picks, four of our six panelists chose Cortland as a likely upset candidate. Cortland had no issues on Saturday. Frank took a flyer on St. John's. I feel like the number of times we said Frank took a flyer on somebody is fairly common in this section. Johnny's had no problem with St. Olaf. Uh, you can understand why. Ryan Tips picked Muhlenberg and nearly got that one right. Probably just need that two-point conversion in the first overtime, that's for sure. Got to go for two, Pat. We don't know yet which team will have won their way into the rankings, but we can be pretty sure that Pat's pick of RPI, Ryan's pick of Howard Payne, Frank's pick of East Texas Baptist, and Riley's double hedge of Brockport and RPI all not going to make it. I picked Western New England to pop up in Region 1, which could happen. Logan picked Monmouth to sneak into the Region 5 rankings, which also could happen. We will finish this next week all right we were also asked to pick that out of endicott harden simmons and susquehanna who would clinch automatic bids here in week 10 these were all teams that needed help and endicott and harden simmons got it ryan tips was the only one to correctly pick those two half points to the two of us you and me greg for picking harden simmons and maybe logan will give two-thirds of a point to himself and riley for picking all three of the teams to clinch frank said none that sounds like no points and lastly, we were asked to say who would be in first place in the ECFC at the end of Saturday. The answer, Gallaudet, which is who everybody on the panel picked except for me. I picked Anna Maria and Dean to be tied atop the ECFC. So wrong for me. I really, really, I just tried to manifest a five-way tie in the ECFC there. That didn't work out for me, but we can still do it in the end, Jack. Pat, the dream is alive. That's the dream. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 342, released on November 6th of 2023. 
Thanks for listening and keep an eye out for our continuing coverage. It only gets busier from here. We're very thankful for the support of our monthly Patreon subscribers. And you can join them or learn more about it by visiting patreon.com slash d3sports. Now, if you can't afford to support us financially, help us out by telling a friend, tell a classmate, tell a fellow alum about the show, tell someone else at the tailgate, tell the parents group on Facebook or Telegram. I don't know where you where people share information these days. Talk about the show. You can give us a five-star review in Apple Podcast if you're so inclined. That helps other people find the show as well. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on X using the D3FB hashtag. I post from at D3Football on X, and Greg is at Wally Wabash. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is Patrick Coleman. It's written by Patrick Coleman and Greg Thomas. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh and Damara O'Malley. Additional audio this week provided by Mark Podolsky. Our theme music is Power 2 by DJ Mentos. We use more tracks of his as well. You can find those at DJMentos.com as well as on Spotify. Thanks to Kaiser Helterbrand, Matt Janis, and Jeff Dart for joining us. Keith McMillan, he was the OG host and the originator of the Around the Nation column on D3Football.com. Greg Thomas sits in those shoes, stands in those shoes, sits in that seat as the columnist and the co-host of this podcast. Thank you, sir. Really appreciate it. I'm pretty sure Keith's shoes several sizes bigger than mine. I don't know. I mean, Keith is, what, 6'3", 6'2". You're taller than I am, so you're probably 6'1". No, I am not taller than you are. Come on. Are you not taller than I am? I thought Yeah, no, if I if I try to wear Keith's sneakers, that's not gonna not gonna work well for me at all. You're gonna make a hard cut and you're gonna leave the shoe on the turf. Indeed. Yeah, that's coming right out of the shoe there. While Rose Holman rode While Rose Holman rolled This is more difficult to say than I thought. That's hard to say. Pat, don't edit out a whole bunch so that you can be right.